Okay, let's begin. Good evening, listeners. Welcome to the Big Issues podcast. This is take two of the podcast. Um, we're going to talk about the grand bargain, the fiscal cliff. So as I speak Washington jargon, what I'm trying to say is, after the debt, debt ceiling deal was passed a couple of days ago with Kevin McCarthy and, and President Biden agreed to a deal, in principle at least, I'm signed to say this episode that James isn't here because he's got his exams to study for. Go and wish him good luck, everybody. Again, please do, please do. And we're going to talk about the last time we had a crisis like this, which was 2011 to 13, the whole grand bargain saga, the fiscal cliff saga, how American are defaulted on the debt, how we went from Republican Democrats bickering to President Obama and Speaker Ben trying to get a deal to a deal to Cantor's initial opposition that derailed it then reviving the grand bargain to then Obama derailing the grand bargain to President Biden, sorry, Vice President Biden speaking, Minority Leader McConnell getting a second deal to the fiscal cliff, to the re-elect campaign, to the how House House Senate had to do post-2012 to the final last-minute arrangement. That sounds very brief, I know. Trust me, we're going to go more in-depth than that, I promise. So, let's just straight dive on into this because James isn't here and for the second week in a row, I'm talking into a machine. So, let's begin. So, the Republican Party, as we know, in 2010, November the 2nd, won back the House. 242 seats in the House um, of Representatives. Now, they started off, the Democrat, the, the, two years before that, they had 178 of the 435. They had basically gained 60 64 seats. 64 seats. That is more than the 54 seats they had gained in 1994 Republican Revolution, in, when Newt Gingrich famously took back the House after 40 years of Democratic rule, famously from 1931 to 19, 1930 to 1994. The Democrats had the House for 60, 60 of the 64 years. So the revolution. But Boehner took back the House. It was a seismic victory because, really, it was Obamacare. But the Republicans had spent two years saying no, no, no to Obamacare, to stimulus, to cap-and-trade, to Dodd-Frank, just no to everything. And used the Tea Party to build a route of support of truly conservative people. Um, yeah, the cranks. But nevertheless, the, so yeah, the key, so famously, it was the response to the bailouts with stimulus, the $77 billion bill, the bailed out banks, the bailed out creditors, that basically it was carrying on Bush's tarp with tax cuts and public investment and some securities when it should have been. Basically, if Obama had sent it in a $2 trillion stimulus, it would have been half a trillion of tax cuts, very similar to the Reagan tax cuts. It had been a trillion of infrastructure investment and half a trillion of Roosevelt-style New Deal, Social Security, uh, welfare, job pro- stroke, stroke, job public works programs. That's what it would have been. In fact, I did have said on this episode 52, I think, called How to Do the Stimulus, which is me. I don't, I don't have the article to this. That's, this is before I got the AirPods inside and basically fixed the whole thing. Um, but it could be good. Uh, okay, so that's called, yeah, how to do the stimulus. So Obama doesn't do that. Then, of course, instead of doing financial service, I mean, look, it should have been done this. Stimulus, financial services reform, then health care. 
he should have brought in the Republicans like Reagan did in that 81 with the Democrats with on, on the stimulus, wrote a bill with them, then done financial service reform, Dodd-Frank, a bit more than Dodd-Frank, but, you know, Dodd-Frank nevertheless, and then had the momentum to push healthcare through. That's what he should have done. In fact, he didn't do that. He did, he did let's spend two weeks writing a stimulus with Harry Reid and Nancy Pelosi writing the bill. Let's make it $77 billion. No Republicans can see or debate it. We're going to ram it through in the Chicago Daily Machine manner. And can we all work together, please? Yeah, that was never going to work, quite frankly. And however good the stimulus was, and it was very good, actually, it was quite a good stimulus, it brought down the Republican cooperation. And famously, there was that infamous meeting in February 2009 where Eric Cantor, who was the House Majority Whip, and uh, it was basically the second most powerful House Republican, sorry, the House Minority Whip, second half House Republican, meeting President Obama, and Boehner, sorry, Cantor had the white paper, of all the ideas House Republicans wanted. And Obama looked at it and said, uh, well, there's, you know, I, I'm not going to read it all, but there's nothing right now, Eric, there's nothing crazy in here. Nothing crazy in here. Uh, this was, These are Cantor's own words. Cantor's own words on the conversation. By the way, all this is coming from PBS Cliffhanger documentary on the Grand Bargain Fiscal Cliff, or from the timeline that, off, that's it. Basically, a lot of this is coming from PBS Cliff, the documentary on PBS called Cliffhanger, these intricate conversations and a lot of the key events. And I'll put the link of that into the podcast later. So, oh, but that conversation came from PBS's Divided States of America, part one, which I'll also put into the podcast later if I can remember to do so. But yeah. Now, Cantor, so, so Cantor, Obama said Cantor's suggestions weren't crazy at all. Which is a really good sign. And if you want to do a bipartisan negotiation, you've got to take 60% of your ideas and 40% of their ideas and bring it together in an amalgam of what the American people want. Triangulation, as Dick Morris, Bill Clinton's pollster, called it. And he was right. He was right. And remember, Obama campaigned on change America. Yes, we can. We've got to bring Republicans and Democrats together. New era in American politics. If you'd done a Roosevelt in '36 and said, you know, I know those bankers and military people and Republicans, they hate me and I welcome them in their hatred of me, as he said in '36, that's and one of and one and one on that basis of the New Deal, that had been different. But he campaigned as a unifier, and he didn't unify the country. He didn't. So yeah, so bank bailouts, stimulus failure. Not well, stimulus wasn't a failure in terms of what it did. It was a failure in that. Basically, you didn't get any Republicans. And then Obamacare. We're going to do an episode on Obamacare, I promise you. But it, it, it appeased nobody. You know, the left were furious because there was no public insurance option, right? The public option is key to any major healthcare reform is public health, public health insurance of some form, whether it's a Medicare public option, whether it's a statewide public option, Public option was key because it ensured that if private providers knocked people off their plans due to pre-existing conditions or because they're not good for the market or because they can, at least then they have somewhere to go to, which is the public option. And we'll do anyone who feels a timeline of U.S. healthcare reform or my many of on U.S. healthcare reform, you'll know why a public insurance system is the key. 
And it didn't satisfy the right wing because the right wing said, well, you're regulating these private providers. So where's the free competition uh, of the free playing of market forces to impersonate Friedrich, Friedrich von Hayek? Um, yeah. So Obamacare satisfied nobody. It was basically, yes, it got 20 million people insured, but Obama promised 44 million would be insured. Yes, it gave, expanded Medicare, but it also gave massive subsidies to the rich. But it's still popular because for all its faults, it is still the best advance in healthcare since Medicare in 1965. So, and actually, it passed the House, I think it was 222 to 211. I could be wrong on those figures, maybe a bit more. Uh, the margin. But that costed the Democrats the House because he did not give Republicans a reason to vote for health care. He didn't. He just went on to the retreat and he said, sign to my legislation. That isn't how you do it. You have to give the opposition a buy-in. Why not allow them to buy insurance across state lines? Why not allow tort reform? Why not allow the public option to be statewide? Why not allow um genuine an exchange-like model that Romney had done where you had 15 insurance companies rather than one. You could have, why not indemnify the hospitals? There are so many things he could have done that could have allowed President Obama to pass a Teddy Kennedy-style bill but brought Republicans in the room. And, you know, working with somebody is not the same as listening to somebody. That's the key. That's the key. And he didn't do that. So coming into 2011, when the Republicans took back the House, he had no political capital with these people. None. None. Joe Biden had a lot, because Joe Biden came from the old school thought, which is you make friends with everybody. That's why Joe Biden could be friends with Teddy Kennedy on the, and Daniel Patrick Moynihan on the left of the Democratic Party, with Sam Nunn in the centre ground and Robert Byrd in the centre ground, with Spectre in the Liberal wing and, and Jeff and was it would he been friends with I don't know if he was friends with Javits, but I assume he would have been friends with Wiker and friends with Lower Wiker and Spectre Alan Spectre to Strom Thurmond on the far right of the GOP. Biden came from that school of thought of your opponents, not your enemies, be good. Be good, work with people, build trust, build friendships. And actually Eric Cantor points us out. He says Obama never understood the, the personal side. And he said Joe Biden always understood the personal side. He said that's why people like Joe Biden, which is true, which is true. Um, so Obama, because of stimulus, because of bailouts, because of health care, doesn't, ha doesn't have a lot of capital. But he gets you right, he does some good things. You know, he passed a lot. So the lame duck session comes in and the Democrats basically do not pass an increase in the debt limit. The lame duck is the session between November and January after the election, but to the swearing in where the incumbent party running the Congress can pass basically anything they like. So John Boehner becomes Speaker of the House January 3rd, 2011. Now, Boehner is from, an, he's, you know, where like Biden is actually, he comes from an old school Republicanism where you're conservative, but you're a deal maker before everything. You're a deal maker. And he comes from the Bob Michael thinking, which is you're conservative, you're a Republican, you're a free market, you believe in the limited government. But if someone's giving you the hand of friendship, you, hand, you shake their hand and bring them along. That's Bob Michael. 
And that's why he was the most effective minority leader in the House in its history. In its history. Um, Boehner instinctively in the House had used the Tea Party to become Speaker, which was horrific since it would be the Tea Party wing that would later bring John Boehner down. But he was a, a moderate in many ways. Well, important to know that Boehner was not the re only reason House Republicans won. They won because of the infamous Young Guns. The Young Guns. And that was Eric Cantor, Paul Ryan, and Kevin McCarthy. So Eric Cantor was the leader, Ryan was the teacher, McCarthy was the strategist. Cantor was majority majority whip. Now he'd be the House Majority Leader, as John Boehner would be Speaker. Paul Ryan would be chairing the Budget Committee. And Ryan, Kevin McCarthy, McCarthy was the judiciary, was he? McCarthy was the whip. McCarthy was the whip now, I think. Let me just quickly check that. Kevin McCarthy. Look at him with the gavel in his hand, the speaker. Yeah, he's the, he's the whip now. He's the whip. And Ryan was budget, wasn't he? Yeah, Ryan was budget, and McCarthy was whip, and Cantor was majority leader. And they had formed a conservative pack, influenced by Tea Party ideas of not raising taxes, not raising spend, rolling back spending to the Eisenhower levels, and basically the party that voted for the Bush tax cuts and two wars on a credit card were now lecturing us on fiscal conservatism. It, it, it's, it, it's the old Joe Biden quote, isn't it? That my, my friend here, uh, the, my friend is now so seized with the... Con no, was it? Was it? Um, they talk as if this great recession as though it fell out of the sky. Like, oh my goodness, where did it come from? It came from this man voting to put two wars on a credit card, a trillion dollars tax cuts on the credit card, a trillion Medicare benefit on the credit card. I said, we can't afford all this. But now they're so seized with their concern for the debt and the deficit that they created. That's what he said in 2012 in the debate. Joe Biden, he was spot on. But the Young Guns ran a very good campaign. They started outlining their ideas. It later became known as the Path to Prosperity, which was Paul Ryan's budget. We'll come on to the Ryan budget later, don't worry. But Boehner becomes speaker on that bandwagon. Now, John Boehner was minority leader in 08 during the financial crisis where he and Nancy Pelosi collaborated to get the Republican votes on board with the bank bailouts, a.k.a. TARP. Uh, he was actually a good lad. But yeah, Ryan McCarthy and yeah, Eric Cantor, majority up, he was the guy who was constantly engineering no votes against Obama. Paul Ryan was the teacher and McCarthy was the strategist. So yes, let's now talk about uh let's talk about the young guns. Let's do them in depth, shall we? Okay. So I've done I've touched on the young guns, but let's be clear about this. So McCarthy, so Cantor Cantor how he offered him the white paper. The white paper. Now, this is a crucial turning point, because remember this. Not one House Republican voted for the stimulus. Not one. Not one. Now, why is that? Two reasons. A, because Obama rejected the white paper out of hand. If you're taking two-fifths of those ideas, 
uh, incorporate it with the liberal spend. If he basically, if he used the white paper for his tax cut section of the stimulus and used the rest for spending, he would have brought on 50 to 60, maybe even 70 House Republicans. He would have. Um, but he didn't. He didn't. And that was declaring war. I was declaring war on the Republican Party. Um, now, Obama, interestingly, his approach was so different to Reagan and Clinton. Reagan said on tax reform, let's cut the rates by 30% across the board. Now, when the Democrats accepted the principle of tax cuts, what did Reagan do? He cut it to 20, he, did, he cut over three years, he cut it over three years, and he did Tefra in 82, where Bob Dole and Tip O'Neill basically reversed one third of the tax cuts and made it 23%, not 30% over two, over three years. Clinton, 1997 balanced budget. What happens? Newt Gingrich and Letson gets at the higher 100,000 new teachers, does the state children's health insurance program, uh, does these things, portability of health insurance, in return, Republicans get the biggest tax cut since 1981. You know, Teddy Kennedy and George H. W. Bush in, 19, in 2001. Bush wants to do education reform. Who does he bring on board? Senator Teddy Kennedy, the, che- the, the liberal lion of the Senate, the most liberal man of the Senate. He says to Teddy Kennedy, listen, you're the chairman of the Health, Education, Labor Committee, all right? You will never sign to vouchers. I understand that. I won't give you spending without testing. So if you agree to nationwide standards, nationwide testing, I will increase the budget department of education over and above inflation by 5.8% and not do vouchers. And NCLB passed with 89 votes in the Senate and passed overwhelmingly in the House. Obama didn't do that. Obama ran on my way or the highway. Now, look, I'd have voted for Barack Obama twice because I'm not putting Sarah Palin anywhere near the White House and I'm not going to allow the path to prosperity to be enacted anywhere near my life. But he did not was not bipartisan. And he ran on bipartisanship. Remember that? 2008, we need someone who can change America. I want to bring Republicans and Democrats together. And yet Eric Cantor offered him a chance to bring Republicans and Democrats together. And he said no. He said, I'm going to ram through the stimulus, $77 million in the Chicago Daily Machine-like manner, and let's all work together. So he had no capital coming into this. He had no capital on health insurance, no capital because of stimulus, no capital because of tech, dot, sorry, Dodd-Frank, nothing. So it's November 15th, it's November 2010, and the Republicans have gone to Baltimore, and they decide to all get to know each other a lot more better, House Republicans, that is, and Cantor comes with the brilliant idea of let's vote no on a debt ceiling increase without spending cuts. Oh, God, above. If you'd like to know where the debt ceiling crisis has happened from, that's the origination of the debt ceiling crisis. Mr. Eric Cantor himself, with that brilliant idea of let's vote no. No. And why could that be that legitimate threat? Because whenever that man had cracked his whip, he got every House Republican to vote no on stimulus, 
on Cap and Trade, on Dodd-Frank, on Obamacare. No, 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 no. So it's believable. It's actually believable. And Republicans are... Democrats are a bit terrified about this, quite frankly. So what happens? Uh, Paul Ryan, on taking the Budget Committee, releases the Path to Prosperity Plan. It is the most draconian, nonsensically silly thing they've done. It basically is this. Cut taxes by a trillion dollars, roll spending back to Eisenhower levels, partially privatise the Medicare programme. Let's repeat that. So he wants to cut spending back to the Eisenhower level. So basically, you roll back the Great Society, you roll back Clinton Economics, you do that. You cut taxes by $1 trillion on top of the $1.3 trillion that George Bush had cut them by in 2001. And then you partially privatize Medicare by making Medicare pay for, as a basically make Medicare into a voucher plan for private insurance. That is politically dangerous. That is dangerous, deluded nonsense. Dangerous, deluded nonsense. And I know that kind of contradicts us about bipartisanship, but maybe some of the tax cuts you can accept. But tax cuts, you need tax reform, really, where you lower the rates back to Simpson Bowles levels, and then you basically cut deductions, loopholes, credits, and you bring things like a carbon tax, a financial transactions tax, and all to raise more money. And so, yeah, that was the, the path to prosperity idea. And Paul Ryan was the teacher of the Republican Party. Let's not forget this. Ryan was the teacher. And every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, he taught class to those new Republicans, and they wanted to learn. And in, in his credit, he's a very good communicator. I disagree with a lot of what Paul Ryan says, but he, he he's like Newt Gingrich, actually, and he has a very good communicative style. Very good persuasive communicative style. So what happens? So the infamous George Washington speech happens where Obama goes to GW University and basically tears the GOP apart to shreds. He basically does this. So he writes a speech which is sticking the middle finger up to Paul Ryan's budget as Ryan's the chairman of the House Budget Committee and the White House. For reasons passing my understanding, you invite congressional leadership of both parties to these speeches. It's protocol. So who do they decide to invite on the Republican side? Yep, you guessed it, Paul Ryan himself. So Obama said, what was it? Um, oh, I've actually got the, the full quote on my substack. What was that? There's nothing brave or serious about planets that they want to cut a trillion off Medicare or something. Where is it? Where is it? Taking... Right. Where is it? It's on my substack. Uh, fiscal cliff. Fiscal cliff, cancer, yeah, cancer. Uh, yeah, there's nothing serious or courageous or courageous that about a plan that claims to reduce the deficit by spending a trillion on tax cuts, millionaires and billionaires. That is not the America I know. 
And worst of all, this is a vision that says, even though we cannot afford to invest in education or maintain our commitment on Medicare and Medicaid, we can still afford more than a trillion dollars of tax cuts for the wealthy. Couldn't put it better myself, President Obama. Spot on. And after this, now Ryan, by the way, came into the speech thinking, okay, now that we've both set out our stalls, what if we have a plan of bipartisanship? And Obama basically just basically gets a two by four and starts battering the speech mercilessly. I mean, it it reminded me of when um, Lyndon Johnson, nineteen sixty six. This was couple years after the midterm elections, and he was coming back from a peace summit in Manila, and Nixon basically made fun of Johnson's Vietnam War strategy, and LBJ was asked about this, and in the White House, and LBJ went. I'd be very happy to talk about a communicate at a foreign policy conference in Manila, but not about with a qualified campaigner like Mr. Nixon. It is his thing to constantly find problems with this country every two years in the month of October. But if you look back at his career, uh, he, he never really had an understanding of what the problems were when he was in office. Uh, if you remember what President Eisenhower said, he said, if you give him a week, you'll find out what he was doing. And now... Uh, he's going around the country after losing in California. Then he flew over the other side of the country, hoping Goldwater would stumble. But when Goldwater didn't stumble, and now he's talking about a conference, which clearly he knows nothing about. That is what Obama's attack on Paul Ryan reminded me of, of LBJ just smacking Richard Nixon around proverbially. But that's the same, because Senator Simpson, well, former Senator Alan Simpson, the great Alan Simpson, uh, of the yes of the Simpson Bowles Commission said uh, he was at the speech. Him and Erskine actually were at the speech. And Simpson later said, geez, he didn't use Ryan by name, but he's, he he was criticizing what he just heard. Anyone who could think of his plan that was so cool, the seniors and old people and old and so on and so on. It was tough and it was nasty. Um, and Gene Sperling, who's the president's economic advisor, got up like he'd been electric, apparently like he'd been out of an electric chair to go and mollify Ryan. And he told Ryan, we didn't know he was coming. And Ryan said he thought the president just poisoned the well. And Ryan was so disgusted at what President Obama said, even though President Obama was saying the truth. He called a press conference where he said the speech was dramatically inaccurate, excessively partisan, totally devoid of the facts. And Cantor by his side said, the only solution this man has is raising taxes. And that falls far short of where the solutions are. Um, so, yeah, they want the Cantor and Ryan wanted a revenue-neutral solution. Cantor, who later, he, did, he ended up not becoming the speaker because of the primary, it was primaried out by Dave Bratt. Paul Ryan was the speaker, 2015 to 18. And McCarthy was, is currently now the speaker, by the way. We don't know how the young guns ever got up to. So, yeah, McCarthy and, uh, sorry, Cantor and Ryan wanted a revenue-neutral tax reform. In other words, where you would lower the rates and then close enough deductions and loopholes that you would not raise any more money for the government, but you wouldn't reduce the money for the government. Um, which is what Simpson Bowles did, you remember. Simpson Bowles raised $1.1 trillion in revenue, but cut taxes by a trillion, and then use the final hundred billion to pay down the deficit over decades. So the government would get no money, new revenue. 
So, Tim, Ga- and by the way, Cantor made clear at a press conference where he said that his only solution was raising taxes, uh, Obama's solution, that is. He made a press conference that he would still use his debt ceiling threat. He's still- and Tim Geithner, who was the Treasury Secretary at the time, was scared out of his mind because he knew that if they had, if then in 2011, if the United States defaulted on its debt, that would trigger a second worldwide Great Depression. Absolutely no doubt at all. So Obama decides to tell his advisors, John Boehner is, he's right about this, is a country club deal-making, smoking, uh, cigarette-smoking Republican. So Obama and Boehner like to play golf, so they get to do a get-to-know-you game. And uh, Boehner says to Obama, Mr. President, this is just about golf, nothing else, just about golf. And they play golf together, and they win together, because they played as a team against a couple other people, and they won as a team. They were very good in golf. Um, no, sorry, they played against each other, and Obama won against Boehner. And as they go out to the clubhouse, Boehner says to Obama, look on this, this debt ceiling, this debt ceiling, let's do something bigger than just the debt ceiling. Let's reinvent the whole of the government. And John Boehner, had the, he was the Speaker of the House, Republican Speaker of the House, had the greatest line. He said, I didn't come here to have a big title, I came here to do big things. Oh, beautiful line. So true. So true. That's one with the right mindset in politics. That's the mindset you need to have in politics. You don't come in with a big title. You came to do big things. So Obama and Boehner start having what's called the Nicorette and Merlot sessions. And it's called the Nicorette and Merlot sessions because you have Obama drinking iced tea whilst chewing on a Nicorette with Boehner with a glass of Merlot red wine and smoking on a cigarette. Um... No, I was not at these conferences age nine, but I watched. I am informed about these things. I am an informed fellow. But that's what happened the Nicorette and Mellow summits. And what they agreed to in those Nicorette and Mellow summits was something drastic $800 billion of more revenue for the federal government. Wow! Oh my god! Eight hundred billion more in tax increases for a Republican Party that had run on the platform of "Read my lips, no new taxes." That in nineteen eighty-eight, that won elect that had basically for the last basically thirty years, twenty years from ninety-one to eleven, had not passed one tax increase, not one tax increase. We're voting for that. We've allowed a Speaker of the House say $800 billion in revenue. In return for $2 trillion of the cuts. On over a decade in entitlements. Well, they're not entitlements. They're social insurance programs. Medicare is insuring its ill health for the elderly. Medicaid is insuring its ill health for poor people. Social security isn't welfare. Social security in America, which is what we call pensions is giving senior citizens what they have earned in their working life. As, as, as a man once said, as a man once said, let us quit treating our senior citizens as grateful welfare recipients. They have built America, and in the building of America, they've not asked for our handout. They All they've asked for is what they've earned. Let us give that to our senior citizens. 
All right, I'll do the full impersonation. Let us quit treating our senior citizens as grateful welfare recipients. They have not asked. Uh, in, they have built America. And in the building of America, they have not asked for a handout. What they've asked for is what they've earned. Let's give which is dignity and respect and honor. Let's give that to our senior citizens. That was a crappy impersonation of Richard Nixon in his 1972 Republican National Convention speech, of which I have listened to. Um, but the, the, these are the entitlements Obama wants to cut two trillion out of in a decade. Um, so that was the grand bargain, and they agreed to that. And then here's what happened. Joe Biden was sent on public talks to go meet Eric Cantor. Now, Biden, of course, came from the old school, which is going to be friends with everybody. And Eric Cantor later called Joe Biden awesome and a really good man. And they were, they, they agreed to two trillion of cuts. Sorry, 1.2 trillion of cuts. No in revenues. No revenues, though. And Biden decided to tell Obama, sorry, Cantor, you do know, folk, folks, that your speaker is meeting with the President of the United States. And Cantor hit it on his face that he was stunned. And then, and then he said to, to Cantor, and he's given away $800 billion in revenue. And then Cantor was secondly stunned. And famously, Eric Cantor later said to a Republican friend of his, I get more information out of Joe Biden on these things than I do my speaker, which is interesting. Interesting. Um, so what happens? News leaks. Obama and Biden met in private, and it sends the Republicans into, oh my God, it's the biggest hissy fit you could imagine. Uh, Tim Hulescamp, uh, a well-known Frank, said oh, the speaker has a tendency to just go into the back rooms and talk to people. That's not a good way of doing government. No, it's the best. It's not a good way, Tim Hulescamp. It's the best way of governing is when you govern in a quiet room with four informed people and you come to a compromise. That is how you govern, my friend. That is how you govern. Backroom deals, backroom card games, card games that lead to governing. Uh, Nicorette and Malot sessions, chain smoking, whiskey, all these things lead to governing. The personal side is key. Personal side is key. Um, so the deal breaks up until it's agreed to that Eric Cantor will go with John Boehner to the White House and meet with Obama. Now, these meetings are not like the Nicorette and Merlot sessions. They're deeply irritating. Basically, Cantor's cutting off Boehner. He's being snipey. He's being rough. He's, he was rude to the president. He was rude to President Obama. You do not be rude to the president, man. And Obama said later, you think you're calling my bluff. You're not calling my bluff. And Obama walked out of the negotiations. And what happened? Republican Democrats ran the line in the Democrat machine brilliance. Eric Cantor wants to default on the debt. Boom. Harry Reid famously said... Um, House Majority Leader Cantor has shown he shouldn't be in these negotiations. And Republicans agree he should not be in the negotiations. And it's about three days of basically tearing Cantor to shreds. And it takes time. So he goes back with John Boehner and they redo an agreement. And it's basically the grand bargain on the Sunday. They have the deal done. $800 billion in revenue, $2 trillion in cuts. Boom. That's the deal. 
and Obama says to his staff, I want this done. Get it signed into law. So, that was the deal. Thank you the very, very next day, where the gang of six decided to come out with their bright idea. Now, the gang of six is basically a proverbial term for when senators get into a private meeting and focus on one issue, okay? Not this is this is a bit different to the committees. This is much more in uh, closer. So, Gang of Six was three Republicans, three Democrats. So, Mark Warner, Democrat from Virginia, conservative Democrat, but a good chap. Uh, Dick Durbin, the most liberal senator in the United States, except for Bernie Sanders. Uh, Ken Conrad, the Democrat from North Dakota, and another good he's a good he's a good lad, Ken Conrad. He leaves did Heidi Heitkamp on his seat in twenty twelve. And she lost his seat. I like Ken Conrad. I'm a I'm a Conrad fan. Um so he was a good lad. Saxy Chamberlain. Oh he won Saxby Chambers, did he win Zell Miller's seat? Oh he won Ma Ah he was the the, the 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 gibbon that took over from the good Max Cleland. Who took who Max Cleland's predecessor was the great Sam Nunn. And who was Sam Nunn? Well, I can give you many things about Sam Nunn, the former Democrat senator from Georgia, who took over, whose seat belonged to Richard Russell. Well, you want, well, you want anecdote that explains why I adore Sam Nunn. So, in 1987, the Republicans tried to do a bill called for building a wall on the southern border. It's, it's like, trust me, Trump's idea was nothing new. And Sam Nunn, instead of going down saying how bad this is, how crude this is, as the chair of the Armed Services Committee goes on the Senate floor and starts to read everything you will need to get that passed into law, to make that thing a reality. I'm actually trying to find what he read out loud. Sam and Rising Star, New York Times. Hey, yes. Just trying to find it for you, dear listeners. Yes, he said to seal the border, it says very quietly, you'll need 80 new military bases, 800 helicopters, 7,400 more police, Three tons of aircraft currently flying. And he went to say, I can go on, but it gets worse. And some of them, it, all his colleagues, Republicans, didn't surrender. And they started waving the white flag and the white handkerchief. Go, stop, stop, please. So that's Sam Nunn. Max Cleland took it over his seat. Sam Nunn, in his last election, won 100% of the votes. That is not a joke. That is not me being exaggerative. That happened. Sam Nunn, 1990. Uh, was it? Yes, it was. He won 100% of the vote. He was literally not opposed. That is when you know you've won an election. Uh, Max Quinn took over, and then, of course, Saxby Chambers took a seat. Now, Saxby Chambers was on the committee. I assume Tom Coburn was on the committee, too. Yes. Oh, Mike Crapper. Okay. So Coburn was the very interesting fellow from Oklahoma who wanted to basically reinvent the tax code. Uh, 
Matt Crapper was the American Conservative Union sweetheart with a 91.3% conservative rating, and he voted for Simpson Bowles, along with Dick Durbin, the most liberal senator in the United States of America, and he voted for Simpson Bowles, along with Judd Gregg, Ken Conrad in the middle. So they come to a deal on the, the Gang of Six. They come to a deal. Now, it's reported privately Gang of Six agreed to $1.2 trillion of revenues. And we know that because Obama, the next day, after taking back, decides to rip up the offer he with Boehner and Cantor and says to Boehner, I want $400 billion more in revenue to sign on the dotted line. Yeah, no. That's what I said to him. No, because that is dishonorable. That's very dishonorable. Once you shake someone's hand and says, I'm with you, you don't roll back on that. Ever. Ever. No excuse. When you look someone in the eye, shake their hand and say, we've got a deal. That's the deal. And you implement it honorably. Um, so Boehner was disgusted. Cantor was irritated and fuming and Bobbena wanted the deal that he was actually going to offer him a trillion in revenue and Cantor and I don't often praise Eric Cantor but on this he was spot on said to McCarthy and Ryan we've got a runaway speaker what are we going to do and they later said to Bena, you want this deal so badly you're willing to give in to this and they told him to walk away. So, Bill Daly, who was Obama's chief of staff, not a Richard Daly, mayor of Chicago, but I think Bill Daly was also the mayor. Was Bill Daly also the mayor of Chicago? I think he was actually. Was Bill was Bill Daly mayor of Chicago? Or was he just like a the Democrats' powerhouse? No, he was not. Hmm. That's interesting. Okay. Ah, that was Tony Quelo. The. Hmm. Sorry, listen. I I I got a bit. Tony Quayle was Al Gore's first campaign manager till Bill Daly took over as general chairman. All right, so Bill Daly later says he tried to call up Boehner and said, you know, get, and after Obama tried to call Boehner, and they went and Boehner didn't answer the phone. Now, this is weird because John Boehner always answers the phone. That's why he's liked. He's like James Baker in that regard. No one's phone calls gets unanswered. Everyone gets returned. And he didn't answer the call. Everyone was very angry by this. And then Boehner comes to the press room and he's joking about the tan and been on the golf course and he's in a good mood and calls up Obama privately and says, I'm not doing the deal. I'm not going to do the 1.2 trillion in revenue. And President Obama said to be so angry that he was literally spewing coals, one advisor said about Obama. Um, spewing coals. So... Obama stormed the stream and says, it is hard, to, says in the press room, it is hard to understand why Speaker Boehner 
would walk out of this deal. And it brings the obvious question, which is, can the Republicans say yes to anything? And the answer to that obvious question is, yes, they did. They said yes to the first round of agreements till you changed the terms. And Boehner rightly says, dealing with the White House is like dealing with a bowl of jello. The White House moved the goalposts. They did move the goalposts. Fact. Evident. Fact. They moved it from $800 billion to $1.2 trillion in revenue. That is, look, I'm personally, I would like to have $2 trillion of revenue for $2 trillion of cuts. I personally am very good on this issue. But you honour your you honour the agreements. You don't walk back on your agreements. So, Joe Biden later calls up Mitch McConnell two days before and basically gets a deal done with McConnell that basically it rolls the whole thing into 2012. So they do a little extension into unemployment insurance, do a little extension of tax cuts. But that's really it. They basically emerge into a fiscal cliff where they basically kick it down the road for another 12 months and America wouldn't default. That was the fiscal cliff as we came away. Basically, the Bush tax cuts and the the, the, so the expiration of the Bush tax cuts and the revenue you get from that and the spending cuts, all the revenue you get from that, that would come in 20, 2013. That was the deal. And they, Republicans, persuaded Boehner to basically wait till 2013, wait till the re-elect. Because they generally thought, sorry, wait till 2012, wait till the re-elect. Because they thought they'd beat Obama. Woo! What did the parties run on in, in economics? The Democrats run on two trillion of cuts, a trillion of revenue, a trillion of debt repayment, and they ran on that. They also ran on the sequester until Obama walked back on the sequester. The sequester was the automatic spending cuts of a trillion, uh, passed with Phil Graham and Warren Rudman. Uh, Phil Graham, of course, was the Southern Democrat turned Republican who said in 2008 the Americans were a nation of whiners and they were living in a mental recession. Uh, and also is a complete, utter frat in every sense of the word. Because, of course, by nation of whiners, he's referring to those American auto workers who, after the plant was closing, still decided to go and work there every single day till it was officially closed so the cars could have brakes. He's talking about those firemen that went into those buildings risking their lives to rescue people. He's talking about army soldiers in Iraq. He's talking about the police officers. He's talking about teachers teaching illiterate children. That's who he means by a nation of whiners. What a git of a human being Phil Graham is in every sense of the word. Literally, he is truly... Read his record. Read the man's... Phil Graham... The Graham Leachy bill in 1999 was the bill that repealed Glass Steagall, the repealing of which caused the 2008 global financial crisis, of which we're still reeling from today. Phil Graham is a man who, as a senator's record and as a person, is truly beneath contempt. But, but back to the back to stick to the facts. So Obama doesn't, promises, doesn't rolls back on his sequester. He promises a trillion of revenue, two trillion of cuts, and that's the deal. That's the deal. Republicans promised to do the Ryan budget, <laughs> dropping the mar- top marginal rate to twenty eight percent back to the Reagan rates, 
cutting spending back to the Eisenhower levels, a partial privatisation of Medicare. I mean, Beggars believe these people. It's absolute beggars belief. They run on a partial privatization of the Medicare program. And Ryan goes, we're not changing it too much. You're changing it from a guaranteed benefit to a voucher. That is partial privatization. We must not support that. We must never support that idea. Ever. But Obama wins. And he wins. 50.8, of the vote, 332 electoral college votes, and Romney wins 206 electoral college votes, about 48% of the vote, which is 1% more than the 47% of which he called victims. Remember that? 47% of America refused to take responsibility, 47% of America rely on the federal government, 47% of America are victims, and they vote for President Obama, so don't worry about those people. Yeah, the second he said that is the second we won the election. Because when you write off 47% of your country minutes, you're finished. I mean, the Republicans should just go and listen to Jack Kemp, who's a Republican, and a very good man. Jack Kemp had the greatest line, which was, you want want to win, we should go out and reach to every American in this country. Because you're not going to win all of them, but you've got to want them. And that is spot on. I mean, famously... Going back to, you know, it's a bit of advice to my Republican friends. Look at Thomas Keene. Thomas Keene is the beacon of how Republicans, actually, how people on the right can white, can unify the country. So let me give you a brief end on who Tom Keene is. So Tom Keene is the Republican governor of New Jersey who won the 1981 New Jersey gubernatorial election by, I think, about 1.1% of the vote, was it? Yeah, 0.0078%. Oh, jeez. He won by 1,700 votes out of 2.3 million of them. Out of 2.3 million casted, Thomas Keane won by 1,700 votes. He got 1,145,999 votes to 1,100... Oh, Jesus. He got 1,145,999 votes to 1,144,202 votes. So you're thinking, controversial figure. He was re-elected with 69.6% of the vote. He went from 49% of the vote, 49.4, to 69.6. He got the New Jersey AFL-CIO the New Jersey AARP regiment. He got Coretta King, who was Martin Luther King's wife, to endorse a Republican for re-election. How simple. He was a conservative. He was a free enterprise committer. He believed in low tax, the small state, and deregulation. You know what he else believed in? He was vocal in, in his support of civil rights. He was vocal in his support of the labor union movement, trade unions. He was vocal in his support for free enterprise. He articulated Probably better, as good as Jack Kemp, who was probably the best Republican articulating how free enterprise can take people out of poverty. And he showed a a deep concern for the environment. He's actually very, he's now regarded as an environmentalist Republican. And he took that strategy of be free enterprise, be low tax, small state, 
but with a deep social conscience for the poor, the labour unions, the environment, the schools, the inner cities, that I could be wrong. And if I am wrong, I will happily be corrected on this. I think he won a majority of the African-American vote. Though I could be correct. Let me just get that. Breakdown. New Jersey, 1985 election voter demographics. Mm. Oh, Tom's River. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Sussex County, Hudson County. Yes, I know the New Jersey County quite well. Anyways, so that was the vision. And that's how Republicans win. Now, Romney ran on very much 47%. Uh, let's defund Planned Parenthood, let's privatise Medicare, and basically, pretty bad campaign. And Obama ran on, basically, we tried the hope and the dream, we tried bipartisanship, let's just be liberal. Let's just talk about how we inherited a crisis from those morons in 2009, we took the car out of the ditch, now let's get it driving. Hence the slogan, let's move forward. Move forward, the slogan 2012? Forward. Because we want to explain how we're going to go progressives. So Obama wins a re-elect. Now, he wins that re-elect because he campaigned on his ideas. He campaigned on the 5 million new jobs, on the American auto industry being back on top, to the home values going up, to to Al-Qaeda being decimated, to Osama bin Laden being dead, to the war in Iraq is up over, the war in Afghanistan is coming to an end, to talking about the rebuilt healthcare system with Obamacare, to how the stimulus was growing the economy. Re-achievement after achievement after achievement in the foreign policy field by actually winning the war on terror and his domestic policy field by rebuilding the economy, rebuilding the health service, rebuilding the schools. And Romney's just saying, tax cuts, more tax cuts, more derate. I mean, Obama summarized the public approach brilliantly, which was they want your vote, but they don't want you to know their plan. And that's because their plan is this. Have a surplus. Try a tax cut. Deficit too high. Try another. Feel a cold coming on? Take two tax cuts, roll back some regulations and call us in the morning. Yes! (laughs) Yes! That is how you deal with the Republicans. (laughs) Have a surplus. Try a tax cut. (laughs) Try another. Oh, that's brilliant. But that was strategy. It was basically attack, attack the Republicans and show your record, which is what Bill Clayton did in 1996, where he said, four years ago, you took me on faith. Now there's a record. Ten and a half million more jobs, rising incomes, falling crime rates and welfare rolls, a strong America at peace. We are better off than we were four years ago. Let's keep it going. We cut the deficit by 60%. Now let's balance the budget. And let's... Um, we put, was it? No. And let's protect Medicare, Medicaid, education, and buying a home. We put we, it's 20, we put 15 million people on paid family leave. Now let's expand it. With our, so all permits can be good parents and good mothers. We, we passed three dr- dr- strikes at the Brady Bill, the handgun ban. 
Now let's put let's go. We passed the handgun ban, the Brady Bill. Now let's go further in showing the more Americans can be as clean can actually live better lives and not be on the streets. What was it further than that? You know, we can build. I mean, that was a record from welfare reform to the crime bill to the Brady Bill to NAFTA to the balanced budget to 1993 budget to 10.5 million more jobs. That's a record you run on. Uh, Roosevelt ran on what was it? The National Recovery Administration, Social Security, the labor unions recovering out of the depression. When you run on your ideas and contrast them with your opponents, you win the election. That is how Roosevelt won in 36. It's how Johnson won in 64. It's how Reagan and Nixon won their landslides. It's how Bill Clinton got re-elected. How Barack Obama got re-elected. You run on your ideas. You run on your victories. And you win. Now, the day after the election, John Boehner, to his eternal credit, decides to make a speech where firstly he acknowledges the president won, secondly he agrees to new revenue with the right conditions of spending cuts. Now, the 800, now he had the power to do that because <clears throat> he had the power to do that because the Republicans still had the House. The other thing as well, 236 seats in the House of Representatives. Democrats had, Dem whilst Democrats won 55 Senate seats, gaining two, the Republicans still had the House, the first re-elected Republican majority since 2004. So, Boehner says, I'm doing this, whether you like it or not, 800 billion more in revenue. Now, the second phase of this is, of understanding the, the key, is the second phase, not the first phase. So, Let's talk about the second phase of the talks, shall we? Um, no, 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 no. Oh, bugger it. Let's just put it on reader view. Now, see, I've not actually read, I'm not actually read, I've done a lot of this freestyle with a bit of prompting myself, but. A lot of this is freestyling. Uh, I'm gonna break down. Do uh, timeline of deck ceiling fiscal cliff. There's this great thing on Wikipedia, which is basically post-election gives you a timeline of everything. Um, found it, found it, found it, found it, found it. Okay. I'm going to use these as prompts, but I've still got my anecdotes in my head, so you'll still hear little old me with his opinions. Um, yes, yeah, so. So after Obama, Bainey gives the speech... Obama meets him on 16th November, and they and him and John Boehner and Harry Reid and Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi they meet for over an hour, hour and a half. It's an actual bipartisan meeting, it's very similar to the nineteen ninety seven talks where the Bill Clinton, Trent Law, and Newt Gingrich, and um, basically, Boehner wanted to do the grand bargain again, and Obama said no. 
I won. And you saw that's like some serious interesting points because the Republican though, Orrin Hatch, November 28th, who was a friend of Senator Teddy Kennedy. And Hatch had agreed, and I love this type of language, Orrin Hatch had agreed to the modifying of tax expenditures as a way to raise revenue. What that means in plain English, he agreed to end some of the tax deductions, loopholes and credits for the wealthy in society to ensure the tax revenue goes up every year. That's what Hatch had agreed to. And Orrin Hatch was a conservative Republican with the same in the Senate amongst fellow conservatives. So that's a huge concession. The next day, Tim Geithner, the outgoing Treasury Secretary, <laughs> offers the world's most idiotic plan. 1.6 trillion in revenue and 400 billion in cuts. Let's be clear about this. Boehner and Obama, only a year before, had agreed to 800 billion in revenue, 2 trillion in cuts. Personally, I think 1.4 trillion in revenue and 1.8 trillion of cuts suffices. Boehner, Geithner wanted 1.6 trillion revenue, 400 billion of cuts. So, December 3rd, Republicans, being Republicans, could not resist showing their own idiotic, stupid, nonsensically batshit idea, which was to raise the Medicare retirement age from 65 to 67. Oh, God. So, so the Democrats proposed an idea born in La, in La La Land of 1.6 trillion in new revenue, and Republicans come up with their crazy idea of raise the retirement age, which doesn't actually raise much in revenue. It's just irritating. He just knows that it irritates us more than anything. And both part, yeah, both parties was absurd. It was absurd on an industrial scale. McConnell obviously proposed to let uh, the, the, the Geithner bill on the floor, Harry Reid said nope not allowing that bill, partly because he would have got about 15 votes at best because I would, honestly 15 votes at best Geithner decided he's going to decide to resign, but this is terrifying is that this is the terrifying bit is Timothy Geithner told the NBC the President Obama is absolutely willing to default on the debt if Republicans won't raise revenue. Well, he's just a credible threat, because he probably would have. So 13th, eight days later, both parties still say they're going to do nothing, and it gets hilarious, because two days later, the unthinkable becomes the reality. John Boehner, the Speaker of the House, decides to offer a concession on an industrial scale. He agrees that the Bush tax cuts should be rolled back for the rich, for those above a million dollars. Let me repeat that. John Boehner the Republican Speaker of the House of a Republican Party that had been running against tax increases for 30, 40 years had agreed 
to making the 39.6% rate of Bill Clinton come back for those on a million bucks. How big of a policy concession do we need to know that he's serious? Because that is surely it. That he was willing to roll back the Bush we have to end the Bush tax cuts to the rolling back the Bush tax cuts for the top one percent ensures a sense of fairness rather than each of us being on our own. We have to end the Bush tax cuts to the wealthy and give tax breaks to lower middle income Americans. Those words, Democrat candidate for President Barack Obama himself, who said in the 2012 vice presidential debates, "We are we are calling for the ending of the Bush tax cuts for those above one million dollars." Vice President. Joseph Biden. But he's still such a big concession. And we, two days later, we offer a few codes like the um, linking Social Security and Medicare to the chain CPI and allowing. Actually, you know, in a way, actually, we offer some conditions. We agree the Medicare retirement age should be put 65, 67, Social Security to the chain CPI. And all income, basically, you roll back the Bush tax cuts, but those were $400,000 a year. Leading to a two-year increase in the debt ceiling. That's not a grand bargain, but it's still pretty interesting, I must say. It's still pretty interesting. And what happened? 18th, the next day, John Boehner walks out the talks and now he's going to do Plan B. Now, Boehner later admits this is because President Obama was not going to negotiate with him and basically kept saying, I won, you lost. And the White House said, well, we don't know why Boehner left because we were so close to winning a deal. Boehner argues the Republican Democrats basically rolled back on the entitlement cuts. I think it's somewhere in between. I I, I don't find it very hard to believe, quite frankly, that President Obama did an I won, you lost type of message. Uh, and roll back in some of the entitlement cuts, but I don't find I find it do also don't find it very hard to believe there is no way on earth there weren't some Republican staffers that were pick, that were having a mess around on revenues. Something both sides. Plan B on December eighteenth is basically, and if you listen to the end of the cliffhanger audio cast, he talks about this bit decent amount, which is Boehner wants to raise taxes on those over a million dollars. Now, key is this. Eric Cantor was no longer opposing him. You see, Cantor, interestingly, when the Republicans lost the election in 2012, became very, 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 very reasonable indeed. Very reasonable. Famously, in the infamous Growth and Opportunity Project report in 2012, what does it call for? Comprehensive immigration reform. Which Obama made a second term parity, um, which Republican Cantor wanted. So he became very reasonable. He was advocating for more revenue. He was advocating for more revenue, having been against it one year ago. So Bain proposes its infamous millionaire's tax, the millionaire's tax, and it fails. Because Democrats won't vote for the cuts, Republicans won't vote for the millionaire's tax. And Boehner um, calls an emergency meeting in the Republican conference in the basement, and said, and Republicans always start the meeting with a prayer. And 
what's the prayer that God gave me the power to see which I can and the power to see what that God gave me the power to change things that I can and make you know, to see the things that I can't something like that uh, where was it yeah so the Republicans always start with a prayer in the meetings and Bainon usually says I'll lead the prayer and he said God gave me the serenity to change the things I can accept the things I can't and the wisdom to recognize the difference. And announced that Plan B was dead. And the next day, he met Harry Reid, who was the Democrat Senate Majority Leader, and a good man, Majority Leader Reid, and he told Harry Reid to go fuck himself. <laughs> and and Reid goes, what? And Bader says it again, go fuck himself. And he later said about Reid, Majority Leader Reed and I are very good friends, and sometimes between friends you need to just clear the air. And actually, they are very good friends. It, this is well known in Washington at the time, so they were probably just clearing the air. And but you can't not the Harry Reed. Don't insult Harry Reed. He's a good man. He didn't get everything right, but he's still a good man. And I, I like Harry Reed a lot. I'm a big Reed. I'm a Reed fan, not because I'm a Pelosi fan. I'm a big Nancy Pelosi fan, but yeah. So, Boehner and Obama decided to devolve the talks away to Leader McConnell and Leader Reid. Harry Reid then walks out of the talks and gives it to, will you please welcome Vice President Joseph Biden. And Joseph Biden comes in the room and says, folks, let's, let's follow our instincts on this one. <laughs> and decides to come to a massive deal with Leader McConnell on the debt ceiling, the basically is this: it extends, it would extend the Bush tax cuts. No, oh no, sorry, sorry, sorry. This is what the House agreed to. Well, I mean, the House agreed to extend the Bush tax cuts for one year. They prevent the sequester from happening. Uh, but that was it. But what did they agree to? Oh, right. So they're still going on. Sorry, they're still my bad. They're still going on with the talks. And then, on 12.01, the US fell on the fiscal cliff, defaulted on its debt for only an hour and a half, because around 2 o'clock in the morning, the Senate passed 80.99, 8998 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, the budget, the basically declared, delayed the cuts for another two months, would expire the Bush tax cuts and everybody, and the state tax would go up. And the federal unemployment insurance would go up for another year. And that was it. Oh, of course. Oh, of course. They, yeah, yeah. House Republicans were... I don't care. House Republicans were crossed. They had a chance. They blew it. So they agreed. So the last minute deal between Biden and McConnell, again, basically expires the Bush tax cuts, delays the sequester-based cuts, it basically, it didn't cut spending. It just let the revenue finally set off again. And, of course, they'd later do the spending cuts. But that's how they saved America from fiscal cliff. Um, yeah. That's an hour. Uh, yes, so exactly. So the alternative minimum tax cut, the payroll tax cut, Medicare Medicaid, that was finally reversed. The Bush tax cuts were allowed to expire at last. And there you go.
Oh, actually, I forgot to mention one more thing, which is, though this won't surprise you, was that the path to prosperity and the Republican 2012 platform wanted to get rid of Obamacare, as long with the partial privatisation of the Medicare programme. And... Yeah, that's basically what happened. So they watered down the grand bargain. They couldn't agree to that because Boehner and Obama had messed it up. They tried, and actually, incidentally, the messing up of the, of the grand bargain, I would argue, definitely costed immigration reform because in 2013, the Senate passed immigration reform, 72 to 28, with only 18 Senate Republicans. And um, what happens? Well, it dies in the house. Why is it dying in the house? Because John Boehner says no. Was in the bill simple. They would secure the border with more troops, more armed guards, more uh, border officials, but they would pass a pathway to citizenship for everyone who's here at the moment. That includes the crime, which is how you do immigration reform. You are not going to de- look. The idea you are going to deport thirteen million people is. A nonsense. It's a farce. You're not going to do that. If you, as Newt Gingrich says, it's logically, strategically, and practically impossible, and it's anti-human. But the idea that you can't then try and secure the border, or at least have some more security to the border, not a wall, because you can solve walls just with ropes, but at least some security, please. Immigration reform will be solved like 2013. That's, that's the baseline deal. And actually, if you remember Newtown, Newtown, which was the Sandy Hook massacre, when basically Americans had their version of Dunblane, and where basically young children were, their lives were forced to expire by a, a serial gunman. And Obama's email to David Axelrod, this is the first time I've ever wept in the Oval Office. And he basically said, Joe, basically do something for which was Joe Biden, of course, in the ideal, and he couldn't because they get fifty six. They got fifty six Senate votes. Not they got a mix of Republican Democrats. Democrats were against it. Some voting for it, and Obama later said, "Well, overall, it's a pretty disgusting day for the Congress because they couldn't even pass federal background checks. Ninety four percent of Americans support federal background checks. Eighty nine percent of NRA members." support universal federal background checks. Um, so yeah, it created a culture of distrust the failure of the grand bargain because things like the gun control, immigration reform, and how Obama later ended up basically saying, I've got my pen on my phone and I'm just going to ignore you and ta After losing the Senate, of course, because he lost it, you know, 50, when Democrats went from 55 Senate seats to 46 Senate seats in 2014 and lost the Senate as a result. Obama basically just did a V fingers to the Republican Party. Well, and of course, there, and I am absolutely certain that the failure of the second term gave rise to President Trump winning in 16. But what are my solutions to ensure this debt? The debt ceiling crisis doesn't happen again. This is interesting because the people say on the left, let's get rid of the debt ceiling, which I think is absurd. The people say on the right, let's just not raise the ceiling. The solution is this. The first solution is pass a balanced budget amendment into law that says, with the exception to wars, 
and pandemics, the government sh- and, re- the- and recessions, the government shall not spend more than it takes in. That's it. They passed an amendment like that in, uh, with the discussion of the government shall not spend more than it takes in, and it failed by one rep- one vote in the Senate. It got 65 Senate seats, 65 votes in the Senate, failed by one, actually two thirds to create an amendment. Number two, reinstate PAYG, that's the pay-as-you-go rule. The notion that any spending increase must be paid for by a tax increase, any spending cut must be paid for, but any spending cut must be paid for with this cor- any tax cut must be paid for by a spending cut. Reinstate that rule. Thirdly, thirdly, let's have a Clinton 93 budget where we have to raise taxes and cut spending. How? You roll back the Trump tax cuts, for the rich, raising $1.9 trillion, but then you also cut spending by a forecast of $2 trillion over the next over the 45 trillion years over the next decade by $2 trillion to cut. Another thing. And if you do all that, if you do that last part, which is $1.8 trillion revenue, $2 trillion of cuts, you will get to a balanced budget in three years. Three years, allowing your debt repayments to go up, allowing your debt to fall. Hence, the debt ceiling can't be an issue anymore. So that's my solutions to a very serious on the debt ceiling. Well, that's in an hour and about an hour and a bit talking about the debt ceiling. Maybe a lot longer. Uh, feels like a lot longer, quite frankly. An hour and fifteen. Uh, but I will talk to you on Saturday, and on Saturday. We will talk about the 1951 to 1964 conservative government with James. I'm getting a bit wound up with doing these one-man band episodes. They're pretty tiring. So I'll either get Mr. Roxburgh to come on with or I'll find someone else to do a collaboration with until Mr. Roxburgh finishes the exams in, well, three weeks' time. So wish him luck for those exams, James. All right, listeners, enjoy yourself. Have a good week, and I will talk to you on Saturday. Ta-ra!